Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Chad Norman, Internet Marketing Manager here at BlackBot and your host for this nonprofit technology podcast. This is episode 13, Lucky 13, for August 5th, 2008. It looks like we're going to have a fundraising-focused show today, which is very exciting, a little break in the normal fare of uh, hardcore tech and social media. But before we get on to the stories, I'd like to introduce today's panel. We have Melanie Malonis back with us from BlackBot. She is the Manager of Public Relations. Hi, Melanie. Hey, Chad. You can find Melanie at blackbot.com slash blackbotnews or twitter.com slash melmilo. And joining us again is Jamie Holiday, our internal communications coordinator here at the BOD and SharePoint guru. Hello, Jamie. Hey, Chad. You can find Jamie at twitter.com slash mebegirl. That's M-E-E-B-E-E-G-I-R-L. And I have two awesome guests here today, um, both people I have met in the past and um, are really uh, proud to have on the show. Starting off, we have Mark Pittman, who is the Director of Inland Foundation for the Inland Hospital in Waterville, Maine, as well as being the ubiquitous fundraising coach. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah, you can find Mark at www.fundraisingcoach.com or twitter.com slash Mark with a C, A. Pittman, P-I-T-M-A-N. Uh, we also have Ken Meiford on the line, who is the Senior Director of Development at the National Baseball Hall of Fame Museum in Cooperstown, New York. Welcome to the show, Ken. Thank you. Anyway, so with that out of the way, I thought I'd just get right into the show. We had saw some interesting stuff come across the blogosphere lately about uh, direct mail. And since I have two fundraising experts on the line today, I thought I'd bring up this topic. I was reading a blog post yesterday that was sort of questioning the future of direct mail, and uh, it pointed to the success of the Obama campaign as an example of how reaching constituents through other channels was their strategy, and that they use direct mail as little as possible. Ken, I know you'll be presenting at the upcoming DMA New York Nonprofit Conference on how to make direct marketing metrics work for small and mid-sized organizations. Um, Direct mail was a big part of your membership push, along with statistical modeling. What advice would you give the other organizations based on your experience with these techniques? Really, the focus of it, you know, the focus of my piece of the presentation uh, is going to be the, the use of data modeling on your internal list um, to get the best return. Um, and I think a lot of organizations face the challenges that we face and that you have limited resources internally to research and identify your top prospects. And one of the, that was one of the huge things for us that came out of our data modeling project was to identify the people where we could uh, where we could best use our resources, you know, to generate major donors out of an ever-growing membership base. So um, that's really going to be my focus. And I think the other challenge that a lot of nonprofits face when they jump into that data modeling thing, because on the surface it all sounds very, very cool, is actually trusting the data that you get back and, and doing what the data tells you to do. Um, and I, I know that I've seen a number of organizations invest in data modeling, look at the results and go, well, I, I don't think this is right, so I'm not going to use it. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest, the biggest downfall for a lot of folks is that uh, if you're going to invest, you need to believe in it. Um, you need to be working with a company who's, who's modeling and um, you know, who's modeling and recommendations you trust and then move forward and give it, a, give it a fair shot to succeed. Right. Now, did some of the modeling indicate to you that direct mail was a proper method of delivery for your constituents? You know, our model was really based more, uh, we had a couple of models built, but really our modeling was, was um, done around, you know, what folks' capacity to give was, um, you know, how likely they were to give to us in any given year. Um, so it really wasn't a, it really wasn't a channel thing. Um, you know, as far as, as direct mail versus 
uh, versus electronic. We rely very heavily on direct mail here at the Hall of Fame, and I, I think it has, has to do with a couple of things. Number one is that on the membership side especially, we are doing a ton of list purchasing and list rentals and list trades with with external organizations. And at least as in my experience so far, I've had a really hard time finding any email lists with well-qualified people on them where you don't get caught up in the spam filters or get people angry at you. But uh, there's plenty of good direct mail lists out there, you know, that you can purchase. I think the other thing is is the core age of our constituency. You know, our sweet spot for membership is, you know, 45 years and up. And, uh, you know, that's a group that is used to receiving direct mail. And we feel like our product as a, as a museum with kind of a nostalgic feel that our product fits really well in that, you know, kind of old school delivery system. So, Ken, you mentioned um, that part of your push with direct mail is to actually get major donors. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So are you yep. are you focusing then mostly on mailing to people who you already have in your database, or are you actually trying to go out there and find new people as well? Well, I think two two totally separate issues for us. We try and bring people in the door with membership. So we are we are soliciting outside of our own database. You know, probably to the tune I'm probably renting three to four hundred thousand names a year um, from external organizations looking to find new donors for membership. Uh, and that's a you know a forty dollar entry level gift all the way up to a thousand bucks you know but in the door if they come in at the forty dollar or the hundred dollar level we're more than happy with that at that point they start to move into our you know into our donor cycle where we're asking these people to donate in addition to their membership dues and that's where the big gifts are coming from for us so once people make that membership decision we're using the modeling to identify uh, and for instance last year we signed up about 18,000 new people so for me to do prospect research on 18,000 people you know with just a couple of staff members in our development office would be impossible what the modeling does is it identifies those top prospects for me and allows me to reach out to those people both over the phone and through um, you know a very personalized high touch direct mail package so that might be a good takeaway for listeners is that it's not a one direct mail strategy fits all. You definitely need to tailor that to whatever you're trying to achieve. Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, for us, the, the, the interesting thing for us has been that we have been able to generate, um, you know, five and $10,000 gifts from folks through the mail, um, which, you know, we had plenty of people tell us when we went into the project two years ago that you can't do that, that you can't raise money that way. And what we found was that we had enough two-way communication that we didn't necessarily need to have a personal relationship with these folks and, um, you know, just showing them the due respect, you know, and, and, and really targeting and asking them for the right amount is, you know, is what made us successful. Mark, in your book, Ask Without Fear, um, you refer to fundraising myth number one, the Field of Dreams fiasco. You write, in the movie Field of Dreams, the refrain is, if you build it, they will come. A nonprofit variation is, if you send it, they will give. Can you explain how organizations can overcome this mentality? <laughs> um, I've, gotten, I've gotten so many board of trustees to not like me. <laughs> even after developing great relationships with them, when, when they uh, chicken out of making a face-to-face ask by saying, well, we'll just mail everyone. And clearly that one person we wanted to target will, will understand, even though we mailed out 100,000. Um, so I call them chickens, and then they don't like me and don't invite me back. But I think <laughs> to answer your question, the best way to, to uh, overcome that 
is one of the simplest. Is I also write in the book. It's called Piets. Put yourself in their shoes. My response to the board of trustees that that really drove this point home to me was: I looked at them. They want to do a plan giving ask of someone to help endow a scholarship. It would have been a perfect fit, but nobody wanted to personally ask them. Even though I was going to do the asking, I just needed someone to get me in the door. I didn't know the lady, and uh, uh, they said, "Well, why don't we just mail a general plan giving announcement to everybody on our mailing list?" for the last 60 years. And um, so what I, I finally, after I got over a lot of the internal angst and all the other things that went on in that meeting, I finally looked at them and said, how many people, how, what would you do? You get a mail from, from even from this organization, you're on the board, you get a piece of paper saying, oh, did you know you can leave us, give us money when you die? How would you respond to that? Right. And, they, and they all looked at each other knowing what their response was. None of them was, <laughs> would give that way. Um, so... Uh, Direct mail can be an incredibly good tool, and it can be used for major gifts. I'm not trying to downplay the importance of direct mail, but uh, it's certainly not the silver bullet. Uh, I think we've all belonged to chambers of commerce and get these generic photocopied, sometimes even mimeographed if the machines are that old, um, pieces of paper, and and the nonprofits wondering, why didn't anybody gift? Uh, And I think part of it's just that that they're falling into the, the, they're not even doing the, simple step of thinking, well, how would a donor perceive this? Is it pertinent? Does it have the relationship Ken was talking about that they've developed with their donors? Are those places, things in place before we make the ask? Yeah, let me let me jump in. The, the mail piece that we had success with in raising major gifts was, was, an, was an expensive piece. You know, it was inside for those, you know, for folks that work in direct mail, there was about a nine-way match where the thing was personalized on, on nine wow. different pieces inside the mail piece. Um, you know, the thing went with first-class postage. There was a, you know, a response envelope in there that had their, you know, their return address printed on it. And really, the packaging was not slick. It was the kind of packaging that you would expect to see out of uh, you know, somebody in the organization put together at their desk. Uh, and it was, a very, it, you know, it was very, very targeted mailing. And the idea was that when somebody got this thing, the impression was that they were the only one who got this package. Nice. It wasn't a mass mailing like um, you know, like you're talking about. And we spent in the neighborhood of five to six dollars a piece to put them in the mail. So um, you know, when you're looking at you know people doing big mailings where you're driving your cost down to you know thirty or forty cents a piece delivered or even less. You know, this was kind of a leap of faith for us to be able to do this. So, absolutely, you have to have the relationship there. But the piece also needs to reflect the value of the donor to you as an organization, and you know, and be personalized enough that you know that you're asking in an appropriate way for that kind of money. You you, you certainly can't send a you know a single page letter and expect to garner a five thousand dollar gift. <laughs> well, the fact that you even did the data mining in your da- database shows that there was forethought in it, and it wasn't just a matter of, I'll just send out, I'm scared to make an ask face-to-face, <laughs> I'm not going to hide behind a piece of paper and a stamp. That wasn't, so that, I, I think what the uh, Field of Dreams fiasco is just the people that are so afraid that they're thinking that they'll just throw paper into people's mailboxes and expect the money to roll in. Or they'll yep, absolutely. So, but it can be a very useful tool. Nine-way match, that's amazing. <laughs> That's what the mailhouse said. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> and Ken, uh, partly due to your efforts, you've recently been promoted to senior director of development. Congratulations! Yay. Hey, thank you. 
And I know your next big conquest is actually to build a planned giving program. Uh, yes. So why do you feel that this is especially important in the current economic state, and how do you think uh, it will coincide with your membership and impressive retention levels you've experienced? Well, I think planned giving is important for us for a, for a couple of reasons. Number one, it helps secure the long-term future of the organization. Number two is that our core constituency, as I mentioned, is in that you know 45 to 65 age group. They own their own homes. You know, they're in executive-level management jobs, and they have kids in college. You know, these families have, you know, have good household incomes, but, you know, a ton of their resources are tied up in their homes, you know, in investment portfolios and in putting their children through college. So we feel like it's a way for them to leave a significant gift to the Hall of Fame without, you know, necessarily impacting their lifestyle today. So that's, that's why it's, a, it's going to be a key focus for us going forward. Now, is this going to be a new program, or do you have one in place currently that you're going to build upon? It is going to be brand new. I mean, certainly if somebody wants to leave us in their will now, we'll take their money. But um, we, haven't, <laughs> we haven't promoted it in any way. We haven't, uh, we haven't told people that it's an option. Um, we haven't told them how to go about doing that, um, and we certainly haven't promoted it. So it will, be a, it will be a brand new launch for us. And what are your goals for the program, say, in the next five years, and how do you plan on starting? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> well, we have the fundraising coach on the line, so I thought maybe we could get a dialogue. Are you that. asking how many people he hopes will die in the next oh, five no, no, years? No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't know that we have any firm, um, you know, I don't know that we have any firm financial goals. You know, the idea is, you know, is to, um, you know, is to, to roll it out there. I mean, we don't think that there's a, we're going to start simple with, um, you know, simple bequests uh, and let people know that that's an option, uh, you know, and then move into some of the more complicated vehicles if we start to show success there. So um, I don't know what it holds. We just, we, we know that it's an opportunity. And Mark, what steps would you recommend an organization take that is cultivating a prospective plan giver? Well, I'm really impressed with what Ken said about he knows exactly what their typical plan giving person is going to be. They knew the the age and gender and life stage, uh, which is just that to me is so important. Uh, where I'm where I'm living, we're in the oldest state in the nation. Maine is. I always thought it was Florida, but it turns out it's Maine. And my part in the my region is the fastest graying region. So um, there's a lot of women here who have outlived their husbands and. Um, are still they're still going strong. They're great. They're wearing the red hats and the purple dresses, and and they're doing their thing. But so I know that my age group is is much more of a seventy year old widow that I'm trying to write to. So I have a very different focus than a forty year old male whose kids are in college. Uh, but I think that for the most important the most important thing for any aspect of fundraising is to figure out who's the ideal donor for the, for that particular vehicle that you're working on. Yeah, I mean that's something we've been seeing a lot here is just. Uh there's all kinds of different vehicles for all kinds of different donors. I mean, as you move from the all the way from direct mail through blogging, through like you know platform-based social networking like Facebook, all the way up to like the live technologies like Quick and Twitter and things like that. Yeah, I don't think you'll be twittering my constituents for print. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, you know, like knowing about these tools and being ready for them is a, is a big part of the game for sure. To you know, get back to the plan giving thing, just like Ken was saying though, that that whole I think it's a public service that we do as fundraisers. Uh, I, I think the numbers are still on 70% of people in America die without a will. And um, if we can just be saying the simple message, 
would you consider including our organization in your estate planning or in your will, or would you consider leaving money in your will? Just the, just simple language where it's part of the, you know, sort of like a PSA. Oh, by the way, you should have a will. <laughs> and here are some tools. Here are some people. There are people in your community that can be part of your team that will help that happen. Uh, so I think it's extremely important that no matter what kind of organization we're having, that is some sort of that's on our radar screen. Whether it's part of just a tagline on our direct mail, um, or or a much more concentrated focus, I think it's the right thing to be doing. And we keep seeing. I just blogged about this a few weeks ago. We keep seeing a lot of people that are unassuming. We nobody knew that they're wealthy, and they're leaving seven, eight, nine million dollars to charity. Wow. Yeah. So you just can't, you just don't know. And if you're not asking, you're certainly not going to get. So. All right, now let's look at the other end of that spectrum. I've been reading a lot for a presentation I'm working on about uh, how Generation Y has been giving, sort of uh, the millennial movement here in fundraising. And uh, I was reading a blog post the other day that was basically saying, like, hey, they're ready to give. I guess uh, the Indiana University Center for Philanthropy um, has released a report that basically says there's essentially no difference in the rates of giving between generations. The average gift is of the boomers higher, not surprising, but the takeaway is that young donors are both willing and able to donate more and are being under-asked by charities with sort of low expectations of that group. Mark, what advice do you have for nonprofits who want to have a bigger Gen Y following? Well, and how did that misconception come along to begin with? What made people think that millennials didn't want oh, to give? I forgot we have a millennial in the room. <laughs> well, that's, that's, I'm glad you said that because for me, as a Gen Xer, my first thing would be, uh, you got to get over the, the boomer hubris of we're the only generation because we're the biggest one. Right. Uh, sorry, I just offended a lot of your listeners, and I don't mean to. <laughs> but um, I think there's a sort of arrogance that's not meant to be, but it comes across as we're the ones clearly that have something to offer, and all these young kids don't know how to do what they're doing, even though a lot of our young kids are now 45 or below, the Gen Xers and, right. and uh, the millennials are active and, you know, starting families and starting careers and doing doing the stuff. Um, so I think that would be the first part is getting a mindset of we need to be catching them now because if we don't. When I worked in schools, I would go out and try. My goal was to meet everybody in college in the first four years of college, buy them a cup of coffee because I wanted to not be a Johnny-come-lately uh, when they made it big. I wanted to be right up front with them that I'm going to be asking you for money all the way through. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to be your best friend for life as long as I'm in this position. So. That would be my first thing. My second thing is uh, go where the Gen Yers are. Wherever the millennials are congregating, hang out there. And I don't, I personally, it's amazing how just 10 years can change the tools that you use. But I don't know if it's Facebook. That's where I'm hanging out a lot, but that doesn't mean that's where the people that are part of the millennial generation, where would you say they're hanging out? Facebook is a pretty good start. And I think, you know, some of the younger kids are still on MySpace as well, so I wouldn't ignore MySpace by any means. So I think a lot of people have a tendency to gravitate to Facebook as being a little bit more um, grown up mm -hmm. than MySpace. But I really liked what you said about not being a Johnny-come-lately because that was one of the things that annoyed me about alumni associations when I was graduating from college was, congratulations, you graduated, now you're part of the alumni association, we're going to ask you for money. You know, as opposed to kind of framing it as you had a great time in college, we want to make sure everybody yeah. else has the same experience you had, and this is how we do it. That's awesome, and, and, and particularly coming from you, because everything I've read is that Gen Y is much more like this, um, the World War II generation than Gen X. Gen X is the kind of you know latchkey kids, and we have to figure out how do we get how to figure out how to get what we're going to get done. So when you're asking us for a gift, we definitely want to know how the money is spent. And we could probably do it cheaper ourselves. You see, uh, there was just a report, of, another report of a donor 
who gave multi-million dollars gift to Oxford University, but he wanted it kept in a particular hedge fund because yeah. he knew he could get a better return on it. But um, the the my sister-in-law, uh, born I think just after 1980, she has this whole her whole all of her friends kind of get together on these big great projects that you'd never see at least in my experience of being part of Generation X, you'd never see that happen. It's a bunch of little groups of people doing really cool things as opposed to massive quilts to help raise aid awareness or massive uh, you know sort of depression era projects sort of sort of things and so. I like the way you, you framed it, Jamie, because I think that that's a big part of it. Yeah, I even know of a case in point where um, I have a friend who works at a university, and they had a young alum who was like 25, and she had graduated and was doing really well and had a little bit more money than she knew what to do with, which is unheard of for a 25-year-old. <laughs> so she came back to the college and said, I want to start a scholarship. I want to do it in five years. I'm going to give you this much money. I want it for this major that I went to in this school, and this is what I'm going to do. How many 25-year-olds do you know wow. who would think that's what I'm going to do with my extra money? Not buy a, full, uh, a Camaro, but I'm going to give it to my university. Wow. So if you give them the opportunity, they just might give it to you. And and there's so many. We've heard of how many thousand millionaires get kind of started at Stanford and never graduate. So it's not that, especially in the day we live in today, wealth isn't having a career and and then retiring. It's it can be created at any point in the life cycle or multiple times. So there's a certain due diligence that nonprofit folks have to have with keeping their keeping people on their radar screen. Right, Ken. I'd love to get sort of your take on all this. I'm, you know, baseball's sort of bigger than ever now. You've got a just great facility there and an awesome offering for people of all ages. Um, how exactly are you sort of looking to Gen Y to sort of uh, carry forward your mission? Well, I, I think it's important for us to start, um, you know, educating people about the importance of, of, you know, preserving our cultural history as early as possible. And, you know, we start that with, you know, we have a junior-level membership for kids that are 12 years old. So we grab them at at Little League and hopefully hold them right through. I, I think the challenge that a lot of cultural organizations have is that, you know, there's this risk of losing people for a few years there. You know, when you go through this point, I think a little bit of, of understanding the importance of a history museum comes with maturity, not saying that those, you know, that there isn't uh, certain groups who respect that history, um, you know, early, but I think it's a challenge for us. So, you know, we feel that by getting them in the door early when they're 12 or 13 years old, you can bring people up in that groove of appreciating, you know, all that came before them and the and the rich heritage that the game has so that they never have that kind of lapse. Instead of trying to jump in when folks are, you know, 45, let's grab them when they're 12, uh, when they're playing Little League ball, and let's carry that relationship right through. I think one of the two things that nonprofits have to ask, just like we talked about already, is what is this a group that they want to to target right now? Because I know for where I live in central Maine, uh, most most people in their 20s and 30s aren't here. So I'm part of a group of people in their 20s and 30s that are trying to bring people back, but they're right now not a funding source for us. So it's, it's other other avenues of volunteering and other thing, other avenues of engagement that we need to build a relationship with, uh, with a hospital. But there are some groups that it would be just, a no-brainer for them to be to be targeting right out of the as a major part of their fundraising effort. So they have to. I think you have to look at who your constituents are and who your natural allies are for that too. Ken, are you guys doing anything with social media at the Hall of Fame? It's certainly something that we are exploring, and we 
you know, hopefully within the next year we'll have something out, I, hopefully less than that, but I like to be a little bit realistic. One of the interesting things for us is that we see, you know, through our events here in Cooperstown and, and when we hold things around the country is that we have, because of the nature of baseball uh, and, you know, the personal connection people have with the game, our events and our membership base, we bring people together uh, and I see it, you know, our induction was um, was just a week or two ago, and I see folks who come to Cooperstown once a year uh, for that particular event, and they meet up with friends who they made here in Cooperstown, and it's the only time that they get together all year long. And when you see them together, uh, it's like they've never been apart. You know, two guys and their families um, you know, all coming together, staying in the same hotel, uh, you know, eating dinner together each night, palling around, um, you know, just enjoying the whole weekend of events together. And, um, you know, to see that, it, it's, it's, it's rewarding for them to have that kind of personal relationship, but the shine for that ultimately reflects on us. Because when they think about that relationship and how wonderful it is to come see that old friend every year or that group of old friends every year, it's the Hall of Fame that enables them to do that. And what we're trying to figure out is how to take that to the web so that people don't have to physically come to our event. They can come to our website and create that kind of relationship where they benefit personally um, through, the, you know, through that communication with another baseball fan, but also it enriches their experience with us because we're providing them with the forum to do that. And since you're, like you said, you're a national organization, it would really make sense to have both regional groups and kind of affinity groups online with the online community. So I think there's a lot of potential there. I agree. <laughs> All right. With that taken care of, I thought I'd throw it to Melanie now for some BlackBot news. Melanie, what's going on? Well, this week, the Charleston Conference for Nonprofits is officially sold out. 1,200 customers coming to Charleston November 16th through 19th. So uh, those horse and carriage ride downtown are going to be full, I'm sure. Uh, we have 130 sessions across 10 different tracks, so there's definitely something for everyone and um, more and more focused on trends rather than product, which is what we've been hearing. So, mm-hmm. Plus, a lot of users are going to be getting together outside of that. No Mark Pittman this year? So, I heard. Mark, <laughs> what's going I don't, on? I don't know. I was told to block it out, but I haven't heard anything. I guess I'll have to send an email find out what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> we need the fundraising coach. That's right. I'll book my room at NBC Suits now, though. Yeah, you better. It's a popular one. <laughs> and then on the West Coast, we actually are sending out the announcement this week uh, about NetWits Live, which is going to be held in Portland, Oregon on October 2nd. And there will be sessions on email marketing, social media, and real-time communications presented by experts like Holly Ross, which we're really excited about Definitely. having out there, uh, the executive director of N10. Allison Van Deest, and our very own podcast host, Chad Norman. That's right. (laughs) Chad, can you give us a preview of your session? Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about sort of the the World Wide Web show and sort of real-time social web tools like Quick and Twitter and uh, how you can sort of use these tools to, like, engage your audience and uh, really create social change instantly rather than uh, with latency. So um, there's a lot of really cool emerging tools, and I think, uh, you know, we're looking at uh, how staff members are sort of becoming the stars of organizations and how, given the right tools, they can really uh, sort of engage your donors in new ways. But I am really excited to actually go to Portland to uh, be on the same stage with Holly and um, just to be a whole part of that scene. It's going to be really cool. 
and people can get a taste of that, I bet, on a recent... Weren't you on a recent radio show? Yeah, you know, I was going to save that for later, but I was on a really great radio sh- show lately called uh, The Ask Without Fear radio show by our... Oh, I've heard of that, yeah. ...our friend Mark Pittman. And yeah, we did. We spent, I think, the entire hour talking about that stuff, which... Uh, was fun. So if you want a taste of my session, you can go hear my rambling there. It's so, sort of, I, I work on internet time, so I speak really quickly. So uh, I'll be covering two hours worth of content in an hour. You need to get that down to 10 minutes. Right. Great. <laughs> <laughs> and another hot topic uh, that we'll be covering at Blackbaud Delivers this week in Chicago is donor retention from analysis to action. And I know that's a, a really uh, big issue for a lot of organizations right now. And Ken, Mark, care to weigh in on how your organizations have tackled this issue? I know, Ken, you have outstanding membership retention. How is this going to transfer over into your donors? You like I, I'm like relaxing here, and then all of a sudden you throw a question to me. I'm like the kid out in left field picking flowers, you know. Nice. <laughs> it's a baseball analogy. Yeah. I like it. <laughs> You know, the biggest challenge for us on retention is really first-year members, um, and I think that most organizations face that. You know, once we get somebody in the door for, for a second year of membership, our retention rate actually jumps up over 90%. And we find the same thing with donors, that, you know, we can convince somebody to give once, uh, and but the hardest thing is to convince them to give that second time. Once they give to us twice, um, then we've kind of got them locked in. Um, you know, as long as we continue to, to communicate with them properly uh, and, um, you know, and, and to keep that communication going two ways and continue to build that relationship. So that, you know, that first year is a challenge. So we devote an awful lot of effort to that, you know, both on the membership side and the donor side, um, you know, through communications, um, you know, personal notes, phone calls. I mean, the, the standard stuff that, uh, that folks should be doing to try and secure those kind of relationships. And, Mark, how have you tackled that issue at your organization? Well, he says we're tackling the issue. I thought, of, what if we tackled the donors? That would help me. That would help me. It's a very athletic market is bow tie. <laughs> and it, since it's a hospital, it could be job security. We might there be able to then take care of their, their wounds while, <laughs> while we're here. Is it top um, of mind for you, though? Because, it, I mean, it's seriously been the overwhelming choice almost in every city so far as far as the topics, uh, donor retention, because we have put the voting in the the registrant's hands, and that's what they want to hear about. Well, it's one of the, I think one of the things about donor retention that, I mean, kind of part of my, what I like to do is just bring things back down to basics, is just knowing what your retention is. And I think that's been one of the hard things for us to to, uh, get a handle on just because we're a young foundation and we're new. We've only been in existence for a few years. Uh, but so that's part of what I'm trying to do is just raise an awareness of setting goals for the year. Uh, this is part of my performance uh, appraisal at the end of the year. What was our retention rate, um, or how many participants do we have? You know, re- repeat year to year. When I was at the the conference for nonprofits last year uh, in Charleston. I got to spend four hours with Mal Warwick, who's a direct mail guru, and it was just really neat seeing what an acquisition direct mail package looks like versus a hey, you're already in the club, will you re-up this year type of direct mail appeal. So I've tried to make a real concerted effort to for people that have already given uh, within the last, for me, it's 18 months, to not only send them the, the newsletters that we send out anyway, specifically send it to them instead of just the blanket bulk mail sending, but also uh, send it more of a, a direct mail appeal that that's, looks more like it came from my desk. It looks more like 
it's just, hey, you're in the club. We know you, you know, you're one of us now, uh, and it's been a year. So that hopefully that will, that kind of more tailored approach will, will help with that too. All right. Is that it, Melanie? Yeah, that's it from the news desk. We have a lot of uh, exciting customer announcements coming out this week. I'll give you a little hint. New York Presbyterian Hospital Ooh. and a really cool organization called Earth Justice that is going to be migrating from Team Approach to BlackBot Enterprise CRM. So stay tuned to blackbot.com slash News for information on those two projects. Very cool. Um, all right, uh, Ken and Mark, I'd like to see if you have any shout-outs. I'll start with you, Ken. Do you have anything uh, upcoming up on the horizon that you'd like to uh, plug for our listeners? You know, we are just past our biggest uh, our biggest event of the year, so we're in a right. little bit of a we're in a little bit of a lull right now. So no, I think I'm good actually. There's no way you can get Goose Gossage <laughs> on the phone right now or anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right, cool. Mark, and I know you're going to probably have to limit uh, your plugs here to uh, under 10. <laughs> so um, I know you got lots of stuff going on. Uh, uh, let's talk about the book. How's the book going? Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you. The book is, uh, as far as I know, it's going well. I've never done this before, but we sold, um, I think it's over 500 copies in the first couple months. Um, and But more gratifying to me is making phone calls to people either in my community or other people and them saying, Okay, now that we're done the business, I read the book and they, they, thank you. I now feel like I can fundraise for my for the nonprofit I'm on the board of. Uh, those comments are the ones I love. And to limit the shout out, the other thing I, I did do is I uh, was just finished recording a whole day of webinar uh, for that expands on the stuff in the book because the book was written for board members. I, there had been all, even before the book was done, people asking me to can you expand on that. So I've uh, created four and a half hours of. Um, just on expanding just for the three or four of the chapters to get real process, and I'm really excited that those are almost all in flash video format. However, you know, thanks to Craigslist, I found someone <laughs> put those together for me, nice. and uh, those should be available online pretty soon too. Cool. Well, yeah, I definitely recommend to all of our listeners to go out to. Um, fundraisingcoach.com and check out all of Mark's work. I mean, you've got such a great just personal sort of uh, grassroots way of approaching all this stuff and I, I really liked reading the book and I've, I've always liked all your all your content so I definitely want all of our readers to check it out. So. Thanks. Ooh, 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 late breaking oh. uh, Twitter question. Oh, we got a Twitter ooh. question. Mark, we will be this comes from Allison Skipper who is one of my uh, PR friends over at the Ports Authority here in Charleston. And she said that she will be kicking off a United Way campaign in the fall. And she wants to know what some effective ways to get employees involved will be in, with their efforts and on the fundraising side. One of the things I know that has been successful in the past for United Way here at the hospital uh, internally has been uh, just raising all sorts of hoopla awareness. They t- usually block out a week and have this committee that uh, passionate United Way folks that um, – is kind of ubiquitous to to use a phrase that Chad used earlier. They're they're everywhere. They have uh, tables and and like noisy things and giveaways and uh, we have fairly high percentage for uh, workplace in Central Maine. We kind of I think we've gotten awards in the past two out of the last three years or something. Uh, so they do they're really good at what they do. But basically, it's um, being in people's face a lot on a constant, steady basis uh, and making sure that the forms are filled out. I mean, it's kind of nothing flashy there, unfortunately. I'm sorry. Oh, they have something in Kid the Pig, too. They have the CFO or the, or the uh, HR, uh, the 
chief executive for human relations, they have this giving bet thing where uh, the one they have two jars and the one with the most the most donations gets to not kiss the pig. So that's something <laughs> that we do here. <laughs> the kind of motivation I like. Nice. <laughs> That's actually something that I can speak to because I work internally a lot with promotions, especially fundraising promotions here at BlackBod. We have a lot of very committed people. And what we found is just like the more avenues, like you said, the more avenues, the better. And people have gotten really creative with giving away vacation days if you donate in a raffle or... Um, you know, big sales and all sorts of variations on how employees can appeal to other employees, which makes it a lot, um, lot nicer than giving to because somebody told you to. Now, does it help? Is it, do you guys uh, internally track if there's a big sale and somebody? Well, that's not a general. That's not a gift. If there's a, given a gift in cash, is there a way of tracking it so you can also help with the employee participation? Um, we don't do that here, so I don't believe we track. Yeah. The money. Um, what we do track is the volunteer for vacation time because Blackbot yes. has a great program where we uh, can award up to three days off for volunteering with local nonprofits. And we have a ton of people that participate both on the board level and just on the, the volunteering level. So that's, that's something we track. And I'm madly looking for the latest update on that, but it's something like... 1,700 hours? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember reading that email a couple of days ago. Yeah. And then we also participate on the all-day uh, day of caring where different departments go out and work in the community, whether it's picking up trash or, you know, doing anything. Uh, also, skills-based volunteering since we have so many uh, talented, nonprofit-focused employees here. Yeah. And I think um, our internal employee organization does actually track, like, overall giving for an initiative. So yeah. if they adopt a nonprofit, then they will track how much overall they raise, but they don't do it, like, by employee or anything like that. That's so I guess to answer your United Way question, even a, step, a couple steps further would be the corporation needs, the company from the top down needs to be really involved in the yes. supporting the United Way because, there can be so many competing bake sales and cookie sales, and you know you have everybody's pet, whatever pet athon, whatever athon. Um, and so one of the things I know we've done internally is we've we don't want our, our employees feeling done every time they walk in. So the only two groups that are allowed to fundraise on uh, internally are is the development office and the United Way campaign. Uh, and that was a huge culture shock when that came around a few years ago. But that that but most employees felt like that raised the level of. Uh, the quality of the workplace. The other thing for to answer the question in that way would be telling the story. Um, I think so many people, I've heard that if there are problems with the United Way or American Red Cross, it, all, every development office in America suffers because they're such well-known identities. And um, United Way folks probably get tired of hearing about the mismanagement 15 years ago that happened, but people still remember that. So making it local, which United Way is so good at, and telling the stories about where the money is actually going, not so much talking United Way as talking about um, the elderly people that are getting heating assistance in the winter, which I guess you guys probably don't need down there, but um, <laughs> whatever, cooling assistance Yeah, we in need the winter, cooling in the summer. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, it hit 100 today. It was yeah. great. <laughs> wow. Well, so telling the story and making it more real uh, for employees so that there's something tangible for them. Cool. 
All right, guys. Well, um, I think we better wrap it up. This has been uh, quite a long show, but some really great content. I, I'm really glad you guys were able to join us today. So um, I'd really like to thank everybody here at the table, Melanie Malonis, Jamie Holiday, Mark Pittman, and Tim Meifert. Um, if any of you listeners have feedback, please send us an email at thebodcast at blackbod.com, and we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. So until then, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to The Bodcast. <laughs> this is an example of the part where the editing comes. When did that part start? Edit, edit this. <laughs> um, cool. <clears throat> okay, so 